Welcome to a podcast about wealth and life with the advisors from Foster and Motley. In this podcast, they share their mission to help individuals, couples, and families achieve the life they envision by providing a comprehensive wealth management experience. Join this seasoned team of experts as they explore actionable steps to improve your financial well-being and answer your most pressing questions. When it comes to your finances, inflation can be a funny thing. It can be good. It can be not so good. The question becomes, is there anything you can do about it? Before we even get to that point, though, we could use a definition and discussion of what inflation is and how it impacts us as consumers. And to do that, we welcome back investment manager Ryan English and financial planner Luke Hale, both with Foster & Motley. I'm Patrice Sikora. Guys, it's great to talk to you both again. Now, inflation usually gets a bad rap, but is it always all bad? And Ryan, you're getting the first question. Give me a basic definition of inflation. Yeah, Patrice. I mean, the, the basic definition of inflation would be over time, kind of the average change in prices that individuals or consumers would pay for a set basket of goods and services. You sound like the CPI. Yeah. The CPI <laughs> is the primary measure, or at least when asked about what is inflation, you generally reference the consumer price index. And that is kind of the, uh, the benchmark for tracking inflation over time. Okay, so tell me more. So the CPI looks at food, beverages, housing, transportation, apparel, basically goods and services. But what does it tell us? Well, it generally tells us how much more those categories cost one year from another. So there is kind of a baseline basket of goods, and then the prices are tracked each month. And it will tell you how much more on a percentage basis that you are paying for those uh, similar basket of goods and services. Now, things can really vary here and there. So there is something called the core CPI. Tell me about that. So the core CPI is the CPI excluding food and energy because you could make a good argument, right? That food and energy as inputs will go into making the other goods and services that you're consuming. Certainly energy is required to make apparel and other different things. So there's an argument you made that you, there's a little, might be a little bit of a double counting in a sense mm. of counting the energy cost to make the goods and services. So that's why you kind of look at the core CPI that excludes that energy cost and food cost. Okay, we're talking about prices year over year. You, you can get a month over month, but the year over year is usually what we're looking at. Uh, but this is old news. CPI is a lagging indicator. Yeah, CPI is, is what's considered a lagging indicator. It's going to tell us uh, a little bit about the trend or confirm the trend, but the information kind of at the time it is received when the Bureau of Labor Statistics, BLS, comes out and says inflation was 4.2% year over year. That is, that is kind of old news in a sense. A lot of consumers have experienced that already. And as far as the stock market is concerned, leading indicators are, are a little bit more important from that aspect. You would consider like the yields on bonds or the yield curve, like a leading indicator saying if it's steepening, that economic growth might be picking up because of it. But the CPI is what's considered a lagging indicator. And that information would be a little bit outdated to the market when it's received. 
All right. Well, Luke, what has inf- inflation been historically? It's typically been about 3.2%. So that was the average from 1914 all the way to 2021. But that goes back a long way. So even if we just look back over the last 20 years, it's 3.1%. So surprisingly, it didn't hmm. vary that much from the long-term average. So it's it stayed fairly contained, especially recent in recent memory, but it is consistent with the long-term app term average. Is there something that's been keeping it under control, so to speak? We've had some good things working that have kept it under control. I think we've had some ability to substitute goods and services. So if the price of one thing goes up, our economy is so vast and and so dynamic that we can substitute something else that does just about as good of a job and maybe pay a little less so that we get to to swap it around. So if we can swap things around, we can kind of keep it in check. Also, the trend towards globalization that's happened over the last 20 or 30 years has also helped a lot. When we thought of inflation back in the 60s and 70s, our labor supply was largely domestic with some kind of trickling in from Japan and other developed economies, Europe, of course. But now the world is really spread out. We've got labor forces in India and China, and all of these people are potentially coming out of a lower earning capacity from the the farms and things like that into a higher earning capacity, but they still don't earn as much as our domestic production, the people that live in America. So if we've been able, our corporations, if we've been able to figure out how to get a lower cost input by having it made somewhere else and shipping it here, that has kept the overall cost of goods and services in check. But it sounds to me like those costs may be going up globally. And how will that impact inflation here? It's going up. Everything that I see is more expensive. Price at the pump, front, the restaurants that we eat in, everything's costing more. Coming out of this pandemic has has really messed the system up. And I think that we're having a hard time, uh, our economists are having a hard time figuring out if this is a temporary blip in inflation. And the buzzword right now is transitory inflation. So nobody ever heard of transitory inflation before a couple months ago, and now everybody uh, is saying transitory inflation. But transitory inflation means maybe it's not for real forever. Maybe it's because the labor supply has in the short term been diminished. So we're seeing wage inflation to try to bring people back to work. Is that because Uh, of COVID, you think? That's because of COVID. We're seeing breaks in our supply chain around the world because of COVID. Things were going pretty good. You could get semiconductors from Taiwan. Oh, uh, that's a big one. Yeah. And put in your car or your computer. And now it's broken because of maybe it's, maybe they're being made in Taiwan and they're they're still being shipped here, but maybe they're sitting in a um, container on the deck of a ship off the coast of Los Angeles and the longshoremen don't have the labor supply to get it in because they're, they're, 
ranks have been diminished during the pandemic. We are hopeful that we're going to work through this and this will be a more short-term thing because longer-term inflation is a little harder pill to swallow for yeah. investment portfolios and for all of us as consumers. It just costs more and we nobody likes to pay significantly more than they did last year. It ought to be about the same or a little bit more. And you can get really granular here. You're talking about the ships not being able to get unloaded, but even getting the cargo. The containers have been left in places because there were no ships to get to the containers the way they were supposed to move them to a new port where they could then be filled or emptied. That's right. So there's a shipping container shortage. It's out there. <laughs> we just can't get to it. The same thing with lumber prices have skyrocketed. Tell me about that. Well, we there's not any less trees than there were a year ago. Same amount of trees. So why have two by four prices increased from two or three dollars to eight dollars? Uh -huh. um, well, we've taken a look at that, and that really has to do with the sawmills. So the sawmills lost their labor, and the labor is gradually coming back. But at the same time, we had this increase in demand for housing because one of the, the emergency measures that our government took was they dropped the interest rates very low, which made the ability to build a new house or to improve your house much easier if you needed to borrow money for it. So that created this huge demand on top of a labor shortage. So now the sawmills tell us that they are getting most of their people back. They are running at full capacity but they're, they have such a large demand, they can't get even with the demand. And they say it may be a year or two. We're hopeful that it'll be a shorter term problem. I think capitalism tends to find a way to exploit high prices. And I suspect we'll find new uh, sawmills or new way to run, ways to run our existing sawmills that allow them to produce a lot of lumber and make a lot of money. But the markets would, eventually adjust, but it's going to take a little while. And going granular again there, the sawmills need truckers to take the wood from the mills to wherever they're going, the ports, whatever. And I'm understanding that there is a shortage of truck drivers. I understand that too. And fuel costs are and going costs. up. True. And then we've had another strange thing happen when the electricity went out in Texas, and whoever thought that would happen, a bunch of the chemical plants got disrupted and shut down. And some of what they were manufacturing went bad. And certainly they were offline for a little while. And a lot of those kind of things that they made went into other products that supplied the building industry. So for instance, my brother-in-law owns a painting company and he said, ceiling paint is now in very short supply. I mean, who would ever thought ceiling paint would be? Really? I mean, it's white. It, there's nothing creative about ceiling no. paint. <laughs> but evidently, the Sherwin-Williams plant that they depend on for a certain chemical that goes into ceiling paint that makes it ceiling paint, I guess it makes it stick to the ceiling, went offline. And now there's a shortage of ceiling paint. There's all kinds of things happening right now as both from the pandemic, from this electrical situation, from our labor supply, and it's just, it's tangled. I think yeah. it's going to take a while to, to sort out the tangle. Yeah, finding chlorine for your pool this summer apparently is a, is a task that someone has to have. 
in the family. But let's talk about, Ryan, let's talk about money supply. This is something that M1, M2 used to be in the news all the time. And now I haven't heard anybody speaking about it for quite some time. It's certainly an exciting topic, the money supply. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it has come to the forefront of the news a little bit more recently because of some of the actions that the Federal Reserve and Congress have taken to, to pump some liquidity into the economy for the pandemic, right? So the money supply, you know, it's measured by, when you think about it, dollars, coins, bank deposits, money in circulation, essentially. The money supply has increased relative to history, more so than kind of everyone has been accustomed to. And that's really what is causing a lot of these questions around inflation. And as Luke mentioned, it's not only that the labor market or the labor supply hasn't fully come back from the pandemic, but it's also the actions that uh, the government has taken in increasing the money supply, which ultimately looking at past examples in other countries that have done it, there's certainly resulted in some inflation. And that certainly hasn't been the case uh, for the United States for many decades now. Inflation has been low. For the Globalization certainly helped that with uh, cheaper labor pools. And you, you also got to you know, think about when you, you're looking at the consumer price index, and the basket of goods and services that is going up every year. But you, and if you were to ask an individual, certainly, are you paying more for things than you were 20 years ago? Everybody's going to say yes. But you also have to consider that there are some quality adjustments in there too, right? I mean, the Radio Shack ad from the 1990s is, I think, the best illustrates this the best way possible where you've got a Sony Walkman, you've got a PC, you've got a VHS recorder, you've got a stereo, you got an alarm clock and you add up all those things and they certainly cost thousands of dollars in the 1990s. And now you can do that on one device, your iPhone for a much cheaper amount. So and that you can't find a radio shack either. Yeah, you can't find a radio. <laughs> That's true. That is very true. Those may be related. Yes. Yes. <laughs> now you mentioned the Fed adding liquidity. Why would they do that? Well, because certainly people were suffering. There was in March of 2020, there was a lot of uncertainty. You had you had a lot of illiquidity in both the stock and bond markets. You had businesses that suddenly didn't have any revenue that had a lot of revenue before, and they were trying to replace lost income essentially from those that would no longer, you know, be able to be employed. So it was kind of a, a temporary band-aid, so to speak, to get through this particular pandemic until vaccines could be rolled out or ultimately it passed. All right. And it goes back to the Fed's mandates, correct? And it does. And they have a dual mandate where they want maximum employment in the economy, but they also want stable prices, right? So it's a little bit in conflict at this point because they have provided all of this liquidity. They've lowered interest rates, at least short-term interest rates till to zero to, to try to stimulate the economy, but ultimately too much stimulus can cause unwanted inflation. So they have a little bit of a delicate balancing act that they're they're trying to do. And ultimately I think we're going to we're going to know how that plays out in a year or two whether a side effect of inflation 
is in fact alive or if it is transitory like the Fed believes it to be right now. Well, I mean, Fed Chairman Jay Powell, he will argue that the labor market, the, the labor supply just hasn't come back. There's still a number of people unemployed. I believe the number is about 7 million. And that's why the, the price index or inflation is what, essentially what we're experiencing right now because of the lack of labor. And ultimately, once those people come back to work, then the inflation rate will moderate and it won't necessarily be a larger problem. I keep hearing the phrase wage inflation. Luke, talk to me about that. Well, that's earning more today than you did yesterday. That's choosing to move jobs. That's because you can earn more doing the same thing at another place. So right now, businesses are put in a position of having a very tight labor force. People aren't quite coming back to work yet. They're getting there, but they're not there yet. And they're having to entice them with more money. That's the tool that the business uses to bring people back. Mm -hmm. So we get wage inflation. So the, the dishwashers at a restaurant that he knows, Ryan was familiar with an example that he told me about that the, that used to earn about $12 an hour. And to get them back, they've had to offer 18 to $20 an hour. That's a big jump. That's a big jump in, in the same job that was happening at a year ago, just fine at these lower wage levels. And then when you bring somebody back at that level, nobody ever goes backward on what they earn, or at least you hope you don't, but it would be unlikely that they can reduce those wages when we re reach a more reasonable labor supply. So that injects a sense of permanence how much people earn and require to go back to work. And then the more money that there is floating around, the more that chases the goods and services that mm -hmm. we all need. So that allows the people that are providing the goods and services that you mentioned in that basket of things that go into the CPI to charge more because there's more dollars chasing the same amount of stuff. Is there any way we can limit inflation? Can we impact it at all? Well, certainly the way inflation has been solved in the past is by the Federal Reserve raising interest rates. Mm. But they've um, said they're not going to do that. They have said they're, they're not going to do that, certainly in the near term. Right, right. I mean, ultimately, if it does come in higher than expected or perceived to be getting out of control, they will, their hand will be forced, I would imagine, ultimately the market and um, the economy will dictate what they have to do in terms of measures they're going to take. I think Could it's that, important. I think it's important good. to note that inflation is it affects people unevenly. So certain groups will be much less affected by inflation than other groups. So right now, if you're shopping for a house or you're doing a home improvement project, you are greatly influenced by the inflation that you're seeing on the market. But if you are a renter and you're a retiree, you're not going out and buying a new suit or a new dress every week in order to go back to the office, all of a sudden your inflation pressures are much more moderated. Maybe you're going to see some inflation at the grocery store, a little bit at the gas pump, but it's not going to really affect your life in the same way 
that it affects the person that's shopping for a new home because new home prices have increased dramatically. And once you tie yourself into buying that home, usually with a mortgage, you've tied yourself into a commitment that you'll need to pay for the next 30 years. So right, um, right now that commitment ain't too bad though. Right. It's like 3%. Yeah. Right. I, I can remember back in the day, no, no years here. I paid 14% on my first mortgage, 14%. Yeah. And now it's three, but now here we're talking about mostly negatives on inflation. Are there any positives? There are some positives and I'll just echo what Luke said as well. I mean, in order for inflation to be more permanent in a sense, you need wage inflation. And typically, because if the prices of goods and services go up, but nobody's wages go up, it's going to be very difficult for those prices to be sustained. So ultimately, when you get bouts of inflation, you, you're you going to have some wage inflation. And those wages take more time to adjust, right? I mean, you think about a United Auto Workers contract. I mean, typically those are three years, right? So the, there's a lag essentially in increasing wages as well. So that's really the follow through for inflation. But it's not... You no, know, Patrice, as you asked, it's not all bad. I mean, you think about great companies in the United States, Walmart for one of them. I mean, they certainly helped keep inflation in check over time by trying to offer consumers goods that were lower prices than before. I mean, they did things through shrewd negotiating supply chains and, and different aspects and building very large stores that ultimately reduced the cost structure and passed on those cost savings to consumers. And then this particular uh, decade, you've got some very successful technology companies and Google being one of them. They have made a very large investment in, you know, what is essentially an intangible asset mm -hmm. and it doesn't require that much capital. So what creates jobs as well is, is large capital expenditures. I mean, you build a factory, you build a plant, you buy equipment, you're going to put more people to work than Google who can leverage that search bar. And when you have additional searches, it requires very little incremental capital to you know be deployed for that particular growth. That has helped kind of keep inflation in check as more of consumer wallets have gone to technology-oriented consumption. I hadn't thought about it that way. When you come right down to what is Google selling? It's nothing tangible, it's your eyeballs. Right. Selling eyeballs. Yeah. Right. All right. I'm thinking assets too. How does inflation impact someone's assets, especially when they're looking at retirement? I think that there, in going back to what we said before, that there's more dollars chasing the same amount of assets. I think as we look at our investment portfolios, the markets in general have increased sometimes quite dramatically. And we're all, cheering that on in one sense. But in another sense, you have to kind of take a, you have to take a hard look at it to say, is this company that was selling detergent last year really that much more valuable mm -hmm. this year? They're selling roughly the same amount of detergent. What's going on? And it may just be that, you, you know, if you invest in cash right now, you're getting paid very little to nothing. Bond yields have come way down because the Federal Reserve dropped interest rates. So that's not very enticing. So the investor is left with 
stocks to a large part. And if you've got more money chasing the same amount of assets now, because the other two traditional classes of investments, and we could probably throw real estate in there too, are not looking as good, then more money chases the same amount of assets and it ends up being worth more just because it's one of the only games in town. What is Foster and Motley doing with your clients to help them weather this? Yeah, I mean, certainly in the portfolio, inflation is on everyone's minds. I mean, typically, if you look historically, good inflation hedges have been companies that have pricing power. They have the ability to raise their prices when their costs go up because, you know, what they're selling is demanded by the marketplace mm -hmm. as needed or whatever it may be. And then there's other investments that um, are typically a little bit more correlated with inflation, energy companies, energy pipelines, investing in treasury inflation protected securities, bonds issued by the U.S. government that their coupons increase as the CPI increases. So we do have a dedicated category in client portfolios, inflation hedges, that we're certainly maintaining an allocation to mm -hmm. in anticipation of potential. Inflation is a, I mean, it is, we've talked about it as a cost to consumers, but really it's, it can also be described as a financial tax. Our clients in retirement are living off their portfolios. They have a standard of living in terms of their expenses each year. And if inflation goes up, I mean, it is almost can be described as a tax on their living expenses where the portfolio needs to help accommodate that. Are you revisiting portfolios or just the inflation story at, at least every couple of months? So we do establish a forward-looking inflation measure. And this input or this variable goes into the financial plans that we run for clients. So it's important to review our inflation assumptions and we do review them periodically. Okay, Ryan, Luke, is there something we have not mentioned about inflation that you think we should? I think we've covered it. I think people should just be aware of it, shouldn't be scared of it, but it's interesting to know how our world is so interconnected. I think we do have in our government because we control our own money supply and we can raise our interest rates if we want to. Mm -hmm. That has traditionally been the way to deal with it if it gets out of control. We have some tools in the toolbox. I have some confidence that those will be used wisely, judiciously, and it'll be it'll be something that some very smart people are working on combating. Uh, a little bit of inflation is okay, but we don't want runaway inflation. And I think we have the tools in the toolbox to, to deal with that. Yeah, I mean, if inflation, as we mentioned before, this isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, if it also corresponds with real economic growth, I mean, there's going to be some inflation. So as long as we're getting real economic growth, there will be some inflation. There'll be more demand for materials. There'll be more demand for labor. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, it's cer certainly the other side of the equation. When you think about which the Fed was trying to avoid the Great Depression in the 1920s with deflation, I mean, that is a much more difficult animal to fight. It, it proved in the 1930s to be very challenging for the U.S. government, for the world, essentially, to come out of that depression. But we've experienced inflation before, and we have the tools to fight it, generally through higher interest rates. So I, th I think it's also to consider the lesser of two evils from that aspect. <laughs>
All right, I think we're going to have to do a podcast on inflation, deflation, and stagflation too. We'll have to get into that. But Ryan, Luke, how can re- how can listeners reach you if they've got questions on this? I think the best way is just to look at our website, fostermotley.com. Uh, we've got a lot of good information on there. We're publishing things on inflation and other topics that we fa- feel that will be interesting to our clients on a, a weekly basis. So check out fostermotley.com. If you have any questions, just give us a call. All right. Great discussion on inflation. I wouldn't be surprised if we revisit this in coming months, too. Ryan English and Luke Hale, thank you both. Listeners, subscribe to Foster and Motley's podcast about wealth and life so you don't miss any episode. Share. And please like, comment, too. I'm Patrice Sakura, And let's talk again later. Thank you for listening to Foster and Motley, a podcast about wealth and life. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information discussed and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Foster and Motley. The content, including mention of specific investments or planning techniques, is for informational and for educational purposes only. It is not intended as a recommendation or a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions regarding your financial planning and investments. Foster & Motley is not affiliated with any third-party providers. Any mention of a third-party provider does not imply an endorsement of that provider. If you decide to utilize a third-party provider, you do so at your own risk.